Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin with Mishkin Law in Chicago. And uh, we have a very, very good show for you guys today, uh, January 29th, 2024. And we are featuring a show from 37 years ago by the Grateful Dead on January 29th, 1987 at the San Francisco Civic Center. It was the middle night of a three-night run at the Civic Center. Uh, with the focus of the weekend being on the Chinese New Year show that they were, every year the Grateful Dead would do uh, a show or a series of shows to celebrate Chinese New Year's. And then later in the month of February, they would do their Mardi Gras shows. And on this occasion, I got myself out to California for it. And after a little screwing around on stage while they tried to figure out what the hell was going on with Bobby's guitar, and we all laughed about it for 10 minutes, uh, they finally kicked things off. And here's what they started with. going to hell in a bucket, but at least I'm enjoying the ride, which is better than Police on a Joyride, which is the oft-told story of the uh, Chicago Tribune article reviewing a dead show from the late 80s, and they played the tune, and the next day the writer eagerly wrote about hearing the Grateful Dead's new tune, Police on a Joyride, for the first time, and how great it was, and we laughed and laughed, and of course there was no emails you could send back in those days, so uh, I think we probably had to call and leave a voicemail message with the Tribune uh, arts department saying, who the hell are you sending over to review these shows um, who don't even know the name of the shows? And of course, they never responded to our call. Um, and somewhere along the way, they got Greg Codd, who knew exactly what he was doing and was very good at reviewing shows. But please on a joyride. It's always our little joke whenever uh, we hear that too. But it's a great way to start the show. Um, you know, get Bobby out there, get him moving around, get the crowd up and about. You know, all that little bantering going on up on stage right before they start is always fun. Right? It's like being at a fish show. You're, you're sitting there, you've got all the anticipation. What are they going to play? What are they going to open with? It can make the show. It can break the show. Um, you know, it can be all sorts of things. And, uh, you know, they dive into Hell in a Bucket. And uh, Bobby really loved that song and played it a lot. It came out a little bit later in their lives on their In the Dark album. Uh, but they did uh, still manage to squeeze it in quite a bit uh, during their career, 217 times total. Uh, first played on May 13th, 1993 at the Greek Theater out in Berkeley. And then last played by the boys on June 30th, 1995 at Three Rivers Stadium in Pittsburgh. So uh, we got to hear it a lot. We got to know it really well. They they have a, um, they put a, a video out back in the day when, you know, people were still doing music videos on MTV or whatever other channels were, were doing that kind of stuff. And, you know, we'd watch it and we'd laugh. They had one for Touch of Grey. It was all... Uh, really kind of silly, but you know, at, at least they were treating the dead as mainstream at that point. So that was nice. Although, as I was just talking about with uh, one of my wife's cousins, um, Susie, who's a big fish fan, uh, you know, that's what happens. You just get to this point where people just kind of accept it without even, you know, just because everybody else is accepting it, it's kind of become popular. It's kind of become the thing to talk about. And, um, you know, look, it is what it is. We love the Grateful Dead, we love Fish, and we love when they get out there and they play good tunes, and this is really a great way to start out and get the show going. Now, let me give you a little bit of background about this show. As I said, this was the middle night of a three-night run. Uh, I make I made it to this show, and then to the next night, the, uh, the, the Saturday night show. This was the Friday night show. This was the night they had the uh, 
the dragon dance, which we'll get to in a minute or two here. Um, but the Grateful Dead would do this every year in the Chinese New Year show. If you, if you go and take a look back on our uh, uh, webpage for today's show, uh, you'll see the show art and my ticket stubs from the, uh, from the show. And the first night that I went, being the second night of the three, uh, was just like one of those standard uh, Ticketmaster tickets where they just spit it out. But the next night, uh, we had scored tickets that were actually from the dead. So you can see all the little fancy, you know, writing on there, trying to make the English look like, you know, Chinese characters and um, the Chinese New Year show. And uh, it was great fun. Um, always enjoyable and, and great that, you know, the dead would pick these little things and make a big deal out of them and, you know, create uh, annual pilgr- annual pilgrimages uh, when people would come running out to to celebrate uh, Chinese New Year's and, and uh, whatever else came next. So Chinese New Year's was fun. Um, now, something interesting that uh, I learned about these shows, and I'm sure there'll be people out there who might disagree, and I have not yet had a chance to run this by good buddy Alex, so uh, he may have differences of opinion on this. But supposedly, these three shows at the Civic Center turned out to be the final shows played by the Grateful Dead within the San Francisco city limits. After this, their shows were typically at the Shoreline Amphitheater or the Oakland Stadium or the Greek Theater. Uh, During colder months, they'd play at the Oakland Auditorium. Uh, For a while in the late 80s and before they got too big, they would sometimes play at the Berkeley Community Theater or at Henry J. Kaiser. Um, I think there was a Marin Veterans Center that had a uh, uh, Veterans Memorial, something that had a, uh, a venue where they might play some shows. But... Um, I haven't had a chance to independently verify this, but they go back in and they haven't uh, um, ever come back to San Francisco. And so, you know, on a certain level, that's kind of cool. And on a, another level, it's, it's, I guess, you know, it's kind of sad, right? Because, I mean, the dead really made their thing in the San Francisco area, playing at all the, the places in San Francisco, the Fillmore, Winterland, the Avalon, the Matrix, the... Um, you know, all of these places where uh, they played all of their, 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 their shows in their infancy as part of the acid tests and everything. Uh, th- this was all centered around San Francisco. They lived in the hate, you know, right at the, right at the, right at the corner of uh, Haight and Asbury. And um, it, it's, it's, I wasn't around, but I don't really specifically remember at the time when they picked up their roots out of San Francisco and moved over to Marin County uh, sometime in the early 70s, I believe. But it's just kind of hard to believe that, you know, these guys really just left the city. And I mean, not that there's anything wrong with it, but I just, you know, so closely associate them with the city of San Francisco and its music scene um, and all of that. And I guess there's probably exceptions to this rule as well, uh, because Garcia certainly played a number of shows still in the San Francisco area at the Warfield and a, and a number of other theaters there. So uh, they, they must just mean by the Grateful Dead uh, as a band. Uh, nevertheless, still uh, find it hard to believe, and if anybody has any evidence out there that that's wrong, would love to hear about it just to set the record straight. Something else about this show that might be slightly overlooked, but shouldn't be, which is that it's January of 87, and people tend to forget that it was just on December 15th, 1986, that Garcia rejoined the band uh, to, to complete his comeback from his diabetic coma that he had slipped into in early July of 1986. And I think I've told the story about how it killed my plans for uh, seeing the Grateful Dead at the Fox Theater in St. Louis in 1986, uh, which would have been uh, well over 10 years since they had last played there in the 70s. We've, we've highlighted a number of those shows uh, from time to time and how much they loved playing in the Fox Theater and in St. Louis and all of this. And then lo and behold, Jerry went into his diabetic coma and, and my second row center seats uh, went by the wayside, which was definitely too bad. But, you know, uh, then the, the question became, would Jerry survive? And not only did he survive, but he ultimately got to the point where he was back and he was back by mid-December and then played, uh, uh, they, they did their uh, New Year's shows. Um, and then these shows were actually the first shows for the band in um, 1987, following uh, the New Year's show. So Garcia had not yet really played a lot of shows. Um, 
you know, like I say, just barely one month since he had picked up his guitar to be out on the stage with the boys again. But as you'll hear on a number of the tunes we we we, we play today, uh, his guitar playing is as outstanding as ever. And I love the story they say that he had to relearn how to play guitar. I wish I could learn how to play guitar that well in such a short period of time because by these shows, he's Jerry again, man. He, his, his fingers are flashing and he's, he's laying down the chords and uh, his voice is very, very strong, uh, as you will hear on... Uh, some of the tunes that we will play as we go forward. But, uh, you know, for Deadheads, this was huge. You know, a little bit like uh, Fish getting back together and, uh, um, you know, Trey, uh, you know, cleaning up his act and or whatever the other issues were at the time that, that had separated them. And uh, at, at this particular occasion, I mean, Jerry had gone into the diabetic coma, um, you know, and, and uh, it was just time to kind of, you know, try to clean up his act a little. And he did succeed at it for a while. Ultimately, we know he didn't. Um, but at least in these shows, you know, when he's he's back out there, he's 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 really letting it fly, and that's just great. Um, another fact about these shows that's uh, very sad. But on the day of this show, the 29th, uh, earlier in the day, just hours before the show, Bobby's dog Otis died. Now Otis might just be another dog out there, and you know, everybody has a dog. And anytime you lose a a dog who's been with you for a long time, it's a sad thing. And um, you know, it, it, it can, for some people, it can, you know, almost have the equivalency of losing, uh, you know, a, a, a human companion, whether they be family or friend or relative or whatever the case may be. But in this case, Otis was not just any other dog and was very, very well known by the Deadheads um, and primarily from the Reckoning album. And on the Reckoning album, they have a wonderful live acoustic version of Ripple. And right in the middle of one of the verses, apparently Otis walks out on stage at, uh, I believe at the time they were at Radio City Music Hall, although it could have been at the Warfield. Maybe it makes sense for it to have been at the Warfield if it was Bobby's dog. Um, and the dog just wanders out on stage. And mid-verse mid, mid of singing, Jerry just kind of pauses and says, oh, that's Otis. And, uh, and then they go on. And what's funny is for people who, you know, really heard Ripple for the first time, you know, uh, live rather than just on American Beauty, Reckoning, uh, you know, came out and had such a beautiful version on there. It got a lot of extended play. So for a while, we'd all laugh that whenever we heard the song right at the spot, we'd say, oh, where's Otis? And then Jerry, of course, would chime in, uh, where is Otis? But but Otis did die. And um, uh, apparently, you know, certainly for Bobby and maybe for some of the other guys in the band, um, it was sad and it was a loss. But, uh, you know, as we heard on Hell in a Bucket, Bobby came out intent on jamming and jam he did as did uh, all the other guys out there um finally i'll give a big shout out to my good buddy tommy who lives up in uh the hudson valley in new york with his lovely wife the lady jewels and uh, uh a cast of thousands of farm animals and all sorts of things and um at the time of these shows tommy was living in palo alto he was taking a graduate program at stanford and uh, he and I made up a little plan for me to head out there. And uh, he came and picked me up. We went to the, we missed the Thursday night show. We went to this show, the Friday night show, then the Saturday night show. And then I flew home on either Sunday or Monday. I was in law school at the time, so I eventually had to get back and, you know, get back to doing my thing. Um, but it was very nice. So shout out to Tommy, who I always love going to dead shows with. And shout out to Tommy's good buddy, Gregor, I believe was his name who came up with the tickets for us for at least one of the nights, if not both of them. And um, there's a really good YouTube clip that I suggest people check out that somebody made of these shows, and it's just one of the nights outside before the show with the Deadheads. And, you know, there's, there's the little park across the street from uh, the Civic Center with the funky little trees. I can't remember the name of what they're called, but very distinct, like almost looking like cactus-type trees in terms of their shapes of their limbs and everything but um, it's just a great this guy walking through the crowd uh, just using some sort of a V8 camera or whatever to just randomly film the crowd and now here it is uh, you know some 36 seven years later and you can look at it I did not see myself or anybody I knew but if you're at those shows check it out and see um, and speaking of those shows let's go back now uh, Bobby we heard him and now Jerry comes back strong with a fan favorite sugary let's listen
listen to it a lot on this uh, show and of course we do because it's a Jerry masterpiece um, and, and did you hear how, how clear and how resonating his voice was he was hitting notes he was going where he had to go with it not a lot of cracking was remembering the lyrics his guitar playing is just stellar and he's just out there uh, you know I always like to think you know I remember seeing him playing during this period of time that you know, this is like, Jerry, you got a second chance on life. When he went down with that diabetic coma, we all assumed he was dead or, you know, probably going to be dead shortly thereafter. And the fact that he pulled through the coma and the fact that he worked himself back into a point where he had the physical and mental capabilities to uh, start playing his instrument again and then to, you know, relearn all of his songs, as it were, and get up and get out there. And uh, now here we are... Uh, you know, just a month or two into his return, and you would hardly know that something was wrong with Jerry. Uh, he's playing so well, I think, and uh, it's just a pleasure to listen to all of that and, uh, you know, how good everything is going for him. So very, very happy at that point, um, seeing a great show, having a wonderful time. Um, and I can tell you right now that I have a distinct memory that the Civic Center that night was not sold out because the floor where we were uh, was not completely full. In other words, it used to be the case, you know, certainly in the mid-1980s for a while, um, you know, the, the, the pre-touch of gray, you know, rocket to stardom and large, unruly crowds, uh, that you might go into some places from time to time and the floor wouldn't fill up. And if you were willing to, you know, take a few steps back and, you know, go more towards the middle or the back of the, of the floor area, you could find all the room you needed uh, to dance, to twirl, to whatever you were into at that particular moment. Um, and that was the case with this show. Tommy and I had plenty of room to, to go back and do our thing, and we were having a good time. And, you know, being out in California, some of the, some of the wonderful things, the bounty of California's nature, you might say. Um, and uh, uh, really a lot of fun. And like I say, Sugary is just a tune. Uh, we all love a lot of my early shows with uh, Grateful Dead shows I went to see with my buddy Tommy. Um, and for a while, he was my uh, California guy. He and I went uh, to the uh, 85 Greek theater shows, the 20th anniversary shows. Um, and, you know, just uh, we always seemed to be in the right place. We saw a couple of Hampton shows together, some shows in Detroit, some shows at Alpine Valley. Um, but it was always a pleasure to go to a show with Tommy because, A, he loved to drive. So regardless of how many cars we needed, whether it was one or whether it was three, he was always going to be a driver. And it was always hard because I'd always get tabbed to drive too, but given my preference, I would always rather be a passenger in a car that Tommy was driving. Um, he was a very good driver, and he enjoyed doing it, and you know, we could smoke joints and listen to good music on the radio and hang out and talk and do all sorts of fun stuff. So um, at any rate, uh, uh, just a great show and great to see... Uh, um, uh, sugary and, and being able to listen to Jerry like that. Uh, Dead played it 362 times. First played on July 31st, 1971 at the Yale Bowl in New Haven, Connecticut. So there you go, all of you Yaleys out there, Eli's, crossword puzzle word. Um, yeah, the Yale Bowl. And I remember reading a story about that show at the Yale Bowl that suggested that the New Haven cops were out and about. And uh, as uh, people came out of the out of the venue and out of the the, the 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 area that had been roped off for the for the concert they were being hassled by the cops and people were being arrested and you know it was that east east coast sensibilities mashing up with uh you know the, the dead which were at that time in 1971 still a relatively new thing that not everybody in town knew about them or what to expect or expect from their people and when they saw it they all kind of freaked out a little bit but over the years, New Haven became a very popular place uh, for the dead to play, and they, they, they did play there often, and uh, some really, really good shows. 
Um, the, the last time that Sugary was performed by the Grateful Dead was at their final show on July 8th, 1995 at Soldier Field in Chicago. Um, and while I do remember them playing that song at that show, I don't remember it sounding anything at all like this version we just heard with that really crisp, solid voice. And you know, the show I saw with my good buddy Andy, um, not to be confused with our great friend Andy from San Francisco, but this is my uh, good buddy Andy um, from here in Chicago, uh, who's a big uh, sporting goods guy and a big fan of the Grateful Dead. Um, and he and I were at that final show together. Uh, and, you know, it was a good version of, it was always fun to hear him play Sugar Ree. But I saw the last four shows and, you know, Jerry's voice just was pretty much gone. He was forgetting a lot of words. He was kind of uh, almost just going through the motions. Um, and it was sad to see. And then after, of course, that show in Chicago on July 8th, within a month, uh, Jerry was dead. And we lost him a long time ago, uh, too long. We're going on 30 years without him. Uh, and that's just kind of incomprehensible to me. You know, I, I only saw the Grateful Dead shows over a period of just right around 14 years. Um, and I haven't seen them, you know, since the show, uh, the July 8th show at Soldier Field. So it, that, that's just a long, long time, uh, long, long time to be gone and a short time to be there. Um, yeah, kind of crazy all the way around. And uh, what are you going to do? Lots of good music coming up. Uh, Phil Lesh and friends have announced that they will be playing a Valentine's Day concert at the Fillmore in San Francisco um, on Wednesday, February 14th. He and his friends lineup, although the exact lineup he's going to be playing with has not yet been released, will be going back to the Fillmore uh, for an evening of Love Dripped Entertainment. Quick shout out and thank you to Relics uh, for providing all of this good information uh, that I'm about to pass along to you regarding... Um, uh, concerts and, and music stuff that's going on. Um, Phil's uh, upcoming concert's going to represent the latest in a string of monthly gigs that have occurred in the region. The trend began late fall when the artist and his band played at the Fillmore on November 3rd. The ensemble returned to the venue for a two-night stand on December 15th and 17th, but ultimately switched locations for the January 13th concert, which took place at the Warfield, another location uh, deeply uh, tied to and connected with the Grateful Dead. Uh, the pre-sale for Phil's concert on February 14th uh, began already, so sorry about that. Last week on January 23rd, and general sale went on January 24th, so it might be too late to grab tickets for these uh, uh, Phil show, this Phil show at the Fillmore. Um, but if I were out there, <coughs> Alex, I would find a way to get those tickets and, uh, and to be there. It sounds like it's going to be a good time. Bob Dylan has announced that he is extending his Rough and Rowdy Ways tour uh, with some news to bring dates in 2024. Uh, you know, and we've been talking about this latest tour of Bob's. It's kind of been going on for a while. It was in the States and it's gone around the world. And we talked about shows he played in Japan a few months back where he featured uh, a number of Grateful Dead shows. Alabama Getaway was one. And um, maybe I think Not Fade Away. And I can't remember the other. Uh, Althea, maybe? Um, I'll have to go back and find I just they're not they're not rolling off the uh, tip of the tongue right now. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, the shows, you know, in many respects were warmly received. There's some people who swear they will never see Bob Dylan again because his voice is not at all what they remember or what they like about him. And my response is Dylan's voice was never great. It was just better than it is now. Uh, nobody becomes a Bob Dylan fan because of his voice. They become a Bob Dylan fan uh, because of his songs and the music that he plays and you know, the, the, the reputation he has and his importance in music and the live music and, you know, going live at the Newport Folk Festival and getting booed but doing it anyway. And, you know, God bless him for doing it. Um, so let's see. The, the, beginning on March 1st, he will return to the road with a show scheduled to occur at the Broward County Center for the Performing Arts in Fort Lauderdale. Um, and then uh, playing there a second night as well. Then going to go to some other Florida stops, including a two-night run at Ruth Eckerd Hall in Clearwater, Florida on March 5th and 6th, uh, an evening in Fort Myers and a pair of gigs at Walt Disney Theater in Orlando. And then the final Florida stop occurs at the Moran Theater in Jacksonville, Florida on March 12th. After a night off to get his strength back, he resumes his run at the Classic Center in Athens, Georgia, 
where he's scheduled to perform on the 14th and 15th of March. The final concerts for this leg of the tour will be on March 17th at the Belk Theater in Charlotte, North Carolina, and March 18th at the Crown Theater in Fayetteville, North Carolina. Uh, the tour itself kicked off way back in November 2021. Dates are expected to continue to flow into 2024. Uh, if you want more information, go to www.bobdylan.com. That's www.bobdylan.com. One word, Bob Dylan, B-O-B-D-Y-L-A-N. Um, and uh, if you go online to the Relics webpage uh, and find the story, they have a whole list again for the shows which are scheduled to run through basically the first half of March. Uh, pretty much in the Florida, Georgia, North Carolina part of the world. Um, but even more uh, dead-related music is coming onto the scene. Uh, a band that's called Live Dead and the Brothers, with the promise of a mesmerizing journey through the golden era of psychedelic blues and scenes of the jam band scene, Live Dead and Brothers, an all-star lineup that features Les Dudek from the Allman Brothers Band, original Grateful Dead pianist Tom Constantin, Barry Dwayne Oakley from the Allman Betts Band, Mark Karen from Bob Weir and Rat Dog, Scott Guberman from Phil Lesh and Friends, and Pete Lavazzoli from O'Teal and Friends is getting ready to embark on a 16-day tour comprised of actual and legacy members from the extended Grateful Dead and Allman Brothers families. This exceptional ensemble boasts a revival of the timeless magic of the Grateful Dead and the Allman Brothers. Uh, Together, the band's co-built concerts uh, during periods of 69 to 73. So going back and viewing that, and we've, we've talked about some of those shows that the Dead and the Allman Brothers played together. Uh, together, Live Dead and the Brothers invite fans old and new to come and relive the raw energy, improvisational prowess and soul, stirring melodies of two iconic bands that defined an era of musical intervention. Now, it sounds exciting, and I'm actually going to go see one of the shows in April, I believe the 18th, in... Cincinnati uh, with good buddy Mark from St. Louis, uh, who was the one who turned me on to this, both the fact that the band exists and that they're touring and that they're going to be in Cincinnati because they're not coming to Chicago and they're not coming to St. Louis where he lives. So uh, he and I are going to make our way out there and uh, check all of that out and uh, should be fun. We'll report back afterwards and let everybody know how it goes. Um, but I can tell you how... Uh, the show from the San Francisco Civic Center on January 29th, 1987 goes. Uh, and we're going to dip now into the drums, but note that the, the, the quick change from what sounds like standard drums, and all of a sudden they're playing drums in a different style to accommodate the fact that um, this is Chinese New Year's and they're about to have a dragon dance. They have to understand while all of that is going on, there is an actual Chinese dragon dance going out among the crowd on the floor. And it's just like you see on TV or if you've ever seen one live before. Um, it's like a large uh, design dragon and there are people under standing below it running the whole length, holding their section up in the air on two wooden poles. 
and they go out and they zigzag and serpentine across the floor and the dragon goes up and down and you know in a wave-like motion and uh, the, you know sometimes they match it up to the beat of what's happening and sometimes they don't but it's just very cool to see and uh, they kind of clear a little part of the floor for uh, the, the dragon performers to come out and to do their thing and you know we, we walked up as close as we could to you know to try and get a peek of it it was a unique experience for me and very very cool to see and really a lot of fun and um, you know, a, a little bit different for a, a dead show, uh, you know, them acknowledging something culturally and people being very respectful about it in the way that it was being uh, presented and, and responded to. And we really enjoyed it. We really had a lot of fun. Um, and, you know, give it to the dead for, for being on top of that kind of stuff and, uh, and, and being able to do it. You can also, if you go onto YouTube, um, there are uh, videos posted of dragon dances from a number of different uh, years of the Grateful Dead uh, Chinese New Year shows. This, this one from 1987 is in fact there, so you can go check it out if you want. And I remember it as being very cool. And when I checked it out on YouTube again the other day, it was very cool. So uh, thanks again to good buddy for Tommy for getting me there for that and uh, having an, an opportunity to experience uh, a little bit of a different way to celebrate. I'd been to the Grateful Dead regular New Year shows before, and um, this was cool too. So really a lot of fun. Now, uh, the boys come back and uh, start up the second set here. And as they head out into the second set, they really bring it on strong um, with a uh, Scarlet Fire. Now, rather than listening to Scarlet or just listening to a fire, this is one of those shows where I think that the transition is really nice. And so uh, thank you to Dan for deciphering my notes and putting together... Um, this, this little clip that'll let you hear as the boys wind down on Scarlet and go diving into uh, fire. So that's just great stuff, you know, and what I love about it, it's like, oh man, Scarlet Begonias is such an amazing tune, and, and now it's ending, and you know, before you can even say anything, uh, Fire on the Mountain is right there, you know, I, I see that a lot on, um, you know, if I'm up late maybe one night watching a movie, and uh, I see that the next movie is, is actually a movie that I like, uh, but I realize that given the time, I can't really afford to be around to watch the next movie, and I'll just have to do it some other time. And they have it set up, you know, this is like on commercial TV now where they get the commercials out of the way, they finish the end of the first movie you're watching there, they kind of scramble through the credits really fast, and then 
without missing a beat, the next movie starts. And, you know, before you know it, you're, at least me, I get totally sucked into that next movie, you know, usually until it gets to a, you know, a commercial or something where I finally realize, no, I can't really stay up all night and watch this. But, you know, same kind of thing here. It's Scarlet Begonia's just going on and on and on. And all of a sudden you hear that bow, 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 And you're like, okay, here we go. Fire on the mountain. Jerry's getting ready to come in and throw down and do his thing. And, you know, keeping in mind, of course, that Fire on the Mountain is a, musically composed by Mickey Hart. Uh, um, and so, you know, there's Robert Hunter lyrics, but uh, that is a Mickey tune, uh, even though Jerry just commands the tune in concert, both on the musical side with his uh, guitar playing and as the vocalist who's belting out the uh, the lyrics and uh, keeps it kind of going with, you know, the tone of his voice and how he does it. And again, um, we didn't get any of the lyrics there on either Scarlet or Fire, uh, but if you go back and listen to this show, I think you'll be really impressed with just how solid they were for both of those songs and how solid the, the full transition, we just don't have enough time to play the six or seven minute transition from the end of Scarlet into the beginning of Fire on the Mountain. And then of course, Fire on the Mountain has uh, at least two very significant, uh, very well played, very uh, Grateful Dead at you know playing at their best instead of at their mediocrest. Um, you know, with Fire on the Mountain and everything else. And it's just uh, a pleasure to, to listen to. It was always fun. The minute they came out and would open with Scarlet, you'd just say, here we go, boys, hang on. Right, just like the start of a, a Help Slip Frank or a China Writer. And you just know that, you know, no matter what else is going on in the world, anywhere else, for the next 15, 20, 25 minutes, the Grateful Dead have you covered. And... Um, it never seemed long enough. It was always, no matter how long they would jam, and, you know, sometimes we'd just lose track of how long they were jamming, and we'd get into a Type 2 jam, and, you know, we, we didn't call it that, of course, because we didn't know that that's what they were going to be called, but we knew what they were. Um, you know, and you just look at, what song are they still playing? I don't know, man, this jam is just so great. I'm having too good of a time. And then they'd swing back around and be like, yes, it's Fire on the Mountain. That's what they're playing. I'm happy to remember, and I love that tune, so it's all good. And... Um, a classic way to uh, see the start of a Grateful Dead show. It took me to my seventh, I think, seventh or eighth, seventh Grateful Dead show uh, to finally see a Scarlet Fire. It was at uh, Poplar Creek, uh, a long-gone music theater in the western suburbs of Chicago that was a lot better than Tinley Park, uh, much easier to get to, much nicer all the way around, better venue, better hill, better everything. Uh, but they got rid of it in Sears, took on either own the property or develop the property and put some little arena on there for smaller hockey teams to play in and some concerts but nothing like uh, uh, a good night at Poplar Creek was always a lot of fun and uh, very much missed but that's where I saw my seventh show uh, my buddy Harold and I had set out on the the tail end of the Midwest tour and caught them in uh, Madison Wisconsin went up to St. Paul and then came back down to see the two final shows uh, at Poplar Creek, and um, the first night they played Scarlet Fire to open the second set. And for me, that, that was just, you know, there's a few moments in my Grateful Dead career uh, that are really, you know, really hard to top in terms of just how incredible those moments were. The, the physical high, the mental high, the, the elation, the joy, the, oh my God, I'm hearing the song that I've been waiting forever to hear, forever being defined up to that point of six shows, of course. But... Um, you know, they just came out and they just smoked on it that night, and it was just incredible. Uh, it was, it's funny because the, the the lawn at Poplar Creek is significantly smaller than the lawn uh, both at Tinley Park and the, the the huge lawn up at Alpine Valley. Um, but it was 1984, and the, the first show of that tour, the first show that we saw in Madison was in the Dane County Coliseum. We walked in as the lights were going out, the whole back half of the floor was completely empty. Seats all over the place that were empty. The show up in St. Paul was uh, also not full at the St. Paul Civic Center. There were seats all over the place and room to hang out. And then these shows at Poplar Creek, and uh, it did matter because you couldn't get too close to the stage because everybody crowded in, but our good buddy Janet got us great tickets, and we saw Scarlet Begonia's Fire on the Mound. But for that, we went up on the lawn, and it was so empty. We were, like, practically doing cartwheels up there. We were so happy. And then the next night, we got a help slip Frank, and it was just wonderful and uh, a great thing to see. But I digress because we're going back a little too far in time there. Uh, we've got to keep our focus on where we're at today. And um, what we're going to do right now is 
turn around and uh, talk a little bit of marijuana. And as always, Dan's got his little marijuana-related clip ready to go. And let's see who it is this week. Yes, the late, great Amy Winehouse uh, and uh, her song Addicted. So I guess it's fair to say that everybody sneaked a butt or two from a roommate at one time or another, but it's just good manners to replace whatever you've taken in a timely fashion. And the song she sings right when you smoke all my weed, man, you got to call the green man. Um, This is a bonus track that was included on the expanded version of her 2006 album, Back to Black, making it extremely clear she wasn't playing either. I used to smoke a lot of weed, the late singer told Rolling Stone in 2007. I suppose you have an, if you have an addictive personality, then you go from one poison to the other. Perhaps she should have stuck with weed four years later. Of course, very sadly, Amy was found dead in her home, a result of alcohol poisoning with a blood alcohol content of more than five times the legal driving limit. And it's very sad. It was a tragedy. I never saw Amy Winehouse uh, in concert. Would have loved to. Uh, she was a performer who, in many respects, was bigger than life with her physical appearance and her hair all kind of up and her, her very brassy voice and just, you know, getting out there and, you know, from, uh, we all know, you know, the rehab song, I ain't going to go to rehab, no, no, no. And, you know, she was laying down the law. She was telling people what she meant and what she felt. And, you know, unfortunately, maybe going to rehab would have been a good thing. But, you know, she's an artist and a performer, and she had to live the way she wanted to live, and I got nothing but love and praise for Amy Winehouse, and just love that, uh, you know, in all of this, she could sing a little bit of song about the uh, the, the green stuff, and so uh, hats off to Amy, hats off to Dan for some more fun stuff, and today we basically have just a, a day of good marijuana stories, a, a day of good marijuana news, a day to really stop and reflect on uh, why we love marijuana. And, you know, one of the reasons that people either love or don't love marijuana, I suppose, depending on your own particular circumstances, is that, as we all know, traditionally marijuana causes the munchies, right? So that's why every joke in the world talks about, oh, you're going to see dispensaries and then a trail of empty Cheeto bags, you know, leading out and around the city and stuff like that because, you know, everybody gets the munchies. We all hear the stories of the Girl Scouts when they're selling their Girl Scout cookies who go uh, line up just outside of um, uh, a dispensary and, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's funny, good for them. They're smart. They know exactly what they're doing. And, um, you know, of course that's what you want to do. But why do we get the munchies? You know, what's really behind the munchies that's, you know, that's really triggering this and causing all of this? Well, according to Marijuana Moment, thank you guys, for the first time scientists have identified exactly what happens in the brain after using marijuana that causes the munchies. A new federally funded study shows researchers at Washington State University published the findings in the journal Scientific Reports revealing how cannabis activates a specific cluster of neurons in the hypothalamus region of the brain that stimulates appetite. The hunger-inducing effects of marijuana have been well understood by consumers, but now the results of the new animal research offers insights that can help lead to the development of targeted therapeutics for people with conditions such as anorexia and obesity, meaning hopefully we can find a way to turn the munchies on or turn the munchies off. Uh, after mice were, mice were exposed to vaporized cannabis, Researchers use calcium imaging technology, similar to a brain MRI, to track changes in neuron activity. They found that marijuana vapor attached to cannabinoid-1 receptors in the brain and activated so-called feeding neurons in the hypothalamus region called agouti-related protein neurons. When mice are given cannabis, neurons come on that typically are not active. Neurons come on that typically are not active, uh, said a professor of neuroscience at Washington State University in a press release. There's something important happening in the the hypothalamus after vapor cannabis. We now know of the ways that the brain responds to recreational type type cannabis to promote appetite, he said. Put in more scientific terms, the study showed pharmacological activation of CB1R attenuated inhibitory synaptic tone onto hunger-promoting agouti-related peptide neurons with the MBH or 
medial basal hypothalamus. Based on these results, we conclude that MBH neurons contribute to the appetite stimulatory properties of inhaled cannabis. Importantly, the study involved vaporized whole plant marijuana rather than injected THC as in prior animal research. So the findings are believed to be more accurately, to more accurately depict brain activity that's applicable to people who consume cannabis. The study was also partly funded by federal agencies, the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, and the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Researchers also received funding from alcohol-related state revenue. The phenomenon of munchies has long intrigued scientists. A 2019 study, for example, found that sales of commonly munched on products like ice cream, cookies, and chips tend to go up after states legalize cannabis. Well, of course they do. Despite that, a 2022 study determined that adults use, adults use legalization is actually associated with lower, with decreased levels of obesity, despite the fact that cannabis is a well-known appetite stimulator. Last year, a meta-analysis also found that people who use marijuana are about half as likely to develop type 2 diabetes. So yeah, we've got that going for us too, uh, you know, a stoner. So that's always a good thing, and uh, you know, we're happy to uh, we're happy to know about that. And I think people are. People are buying marijuana more and more. Missouri, we talked about Illinois the other day at $1.6 billion setting a record. Well, Missouri, whose program is two years younger, uh, with their December sales, just pushed past $1.3 billion for sales in 2023. Uh, just unbelievable. The adult-use marijuana sales reached approximately $1.4 billion, uh, $106.5 million in adult-use cannabis sales in December breaking the previous record of 98.7 million set in July. Uh, medical cannabis sales for the year were at about uh, 3.02 million, so on top of the, uh, uh, the other amount for the uh, 1.04 billion for adult use. Um, in 2023, uh, it was predicted by MJ Biz, and this is MJ Biz stuff, thank you guys. They predicted 800 million in recreational sales and 500 million in medical cannabis for a total of 1.3 billion. The disparity between adult use and medical suggests that Missouri medical cannabis patients are transitioning more quickly to adult use dispensaries. It also means that Missouri is actually rolling out a number of these adult use dispensaries, which is the model that Illinois has not yet successfully followed. So even though Illinois can claim $1.6 billion in sales, it's not that much more than Missouri's total sales for a program that's significantly farther behind in its overall development. And that's something that Illinois should be concerned about and should really be making an effort to get as many of these dispensaries out there so that we can start to see similar comparable results in Illinois, meaning given the number of citizens in the state of Illinois and the demographics, meaning when they look at it, the, the expected numbers of how many people may be buying marijuana, Illinois should be the third largest market in the country behind California and New York. New York's having a little trouble getting off the ground, as we know. So that should really make Illinois number two for the time being. Um, but they just haven't quite gotten it all together yet. We're working on it, and we're moving in the right direction. And we are now starting to get some new independent dispensaries and craft grow cultivation centers that are making their appearance on the scene. And, uh, you know, hopefully soon we will see the results in significantly increased business in the state of Illinois. Um, but uh, this is just really, really huge. And what's interesting is that cross-border demand continues to play a role in Missouri, uh, which launched its adult sales use in February. Remember, so really um, just ba barely a year ago, um, and retail outlets bordering Arkansas, Kansas, and Oklahoma are seeing a steady growth of business. Uh, Missouri marijuana dispensaries are seeing customers travel from Illinois where adult-use cannabis has been available since January 2020, but it's taxed more heavily. We've always said that it's, uh, um, it's overpriced, and people who live in southern Illinois are driving into Missouri to make their uh, dispensary purchases. And Missouri, on top of all of that, is poised to add more retail capacity this year through an additional round of micro-business licenses. So, you know, Missouri's pushing it too, and they're really trying to get there. And for the most part, they've just done an absolutely outstanding job, and it has to be recognized. And, um, you know, Missouri gets all the credit, and they deserve it on this because uh, they've just been a model success story on how to get cannabis up and running and doing it in a way that allows maximum, uh, maximum exposure to their market 
so that they can be coming up with sales uh, that are rivaling those of markets that are larger than theirs and uh, significantly more established. So hats off to Missouri for doing that. And um, I enjoy going to their dispensaries when I'm down there visiting family. Uh, and I hope that they'll just keep getting better and better too. And we will look forward to that. Um, finally, I really have three stories. We don't have time to get on with all of them. But we do have time just to start listing what they are. And I think you're going to notice a very good trend here. And uh, one we've all been waiting to see for a long time. UFC form formally removes marijuana from banned substance lists for professional fighters. The Ultimate Fighting Championship announced this past week that it is formally removing marijuana from its newly modified banned substance list for athletes building on earlier reform. They say that the modeling list, uh, it's model, it is modeling its list of prohibitive drugs on the World Anti-Doping Agency, WADA, which has controversially maintained cannabis as banned substance. It is making amendments based on historical findings uh, by various organizations as they go along the way. Now, professional fighters were largely protected from being penalized over testing positive for THC under a policy change the UFC adopted in 2021, but now it is removing cannabis as a banned drug altogether. Uh, UFC's goal for the anti-doping policy is to be the best, most effective, and most progressive anti-doping program in all of professional sports, its chief of business officer, Hunter Campbell, said in a press release. Okay, that's story number one. Story number two, NCAA Division I to vote on removing marijuana from bad substance list for student athletes. Hallelujah, and it is about damn time. New college athletic proposal would remove marijuana from the list of substances included in drug screenings for NCAA championship competitions, with officials set to vote on the matter in June. Proponents say the approach is consistent with designing rules to focus on reducing harm rather than punishing student-athletes. The plan would build on a 2022 change that increased the allowable THC thresholds for college athletes, aligning NCAA rules with those of the group we just talked about, the World Anti-Doping Agency, WADA. The latest proposal would effectively treat marijuana more like alcohol. While the NCAA doesn't intend for the change to promote cannabis use, the substance isn't believed to give competitors an unfair advantage in sports. Cannabis is not a performance-enhancing drug, and we determined that drugs testing conducted at NCAA championships should focus on substances that impact competitive out uh, outcomes, said Pat Chun, who's the athletics director at Washington State and chair of the Strategic Vision and Planning Committee. Uh, he said this in a statement last week. To be clear, this does not mean that NCAA members condone or promote the use of cannabinoids. However, rather than focusing on testing and subsequently penalizing student-athletes who use cannabis, the NCAA efforts should focus on harm reduction strategy similar to substances like alcohol. Thank God again, folks. Here we go, right? This is somebody who's speaking with a level head and who's recognizing the things that we talk about all the time here, which is that... Athletes aren't tested for alcohol, which is much worse for them, uh, very problematic. And meanwhile, they're, they're getting suspended and, 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 and fined and all sorts of stuff for using marijuana, which is substantially safer and way yes, which generally does not provide um, a uh, competitive advantage. Now, again, we've talked about it on this show, and there are people out there who say that, you know, sometimes, especially for for marathon and ultramarathon events, you know, whether it's, you know, running 80 miles or 90 miles through uh, uh, the Mojave Desert or, um, you know, whether it's riding your bike, you know, for a thousand miles, you know, people who go out to break these endurance records and all sorts of stuff. There have been stories linked to the fact that smoking marijuana or using cannabis uh, can be beneficial in terms of relaxing your mind and letting you focus on the task at hand without basically freaking over about, oh my God, I've, you know, I've just run five miles. I still have, you know, 95 to go or whatever, you know, whatever it is. But I think that what they're really talking about is that you don't see somebody step onto the basketball court or the football field or the baseball field or the tennis court or the swimming pool and start performing better uh, because they've been smoking marijuana, just like we don't expect them to perform better because they may have had a beer the night before if they're 21 and they drink a beer. So uh, I see this as a very good thing. Uh, it's, it's great to always see uh, that the NCAA is finding ways to keep its hands off of its student athletes in terms of restricting rights and telling them what they can and cannot do. And for too long, we've seen student athletes who at their core are college students doing what all their other fellow college students do 
uh, and they should be able to enjoy their college experience safely, responsibly, but still enjoy it nonetheless. And hopefully this will go a long way towards allowing that to happen. And uh, one more from Marijuana Moment uh, that we'll just throw out there because this is good stuff. The NFL is partnering on a new study using CBD to treat pain and protect from concussions. The National Football League is partnering with Canadian researchers on a clinical trial to to test the safety and efficacy of CBD for pain management and neuroprotection from concussions, key issues for many football players who experience injuries as part of the game. The phase one trial will involve 35 people who will receive either a placebo or CBD-rich cannabis extract to test whether it's safe, well-tolerated, and without adverse physiological and psychological dysfunction for daily use. The NFL has committed hundreds of thousands of dollars to research investigating the therapeutic, the therapeutic potential of the non-intoxicating cannabinoid in recent years, including funding for studies of CBD as potential opioid alternatives. For the study, researchers at the University of Regina in Canada will collaborate with the NFL to identify the optimal dose of cannabidiol that can be safely consumed on a daily basis. Participants who receive the CBD will start with 5 milligrams per kilogram of body weight, and that will generally increase to 30 milligrams per kilogram of body weight. The study is designed to investigate anti-inflammatory and neuroprotection of the CBD formulation to determine whether it can be used on a daily basis, safely during the periods of intensive exercise, training during the off-season, prior to competition. Spoiler alert, the answer is going to be that yes, it can be used safe. We know this. Raphael Meshulam from Israel made this discovery uh, 30, 40, 50 years ago when people had not even heard about CBD, didn't even realize that it existed, and still just thought of marijuana as this plant that for some reason, if you smoke it, uh, is going to get you wacky. Um, so it's great to see the NFL doing this, um, and great that they will get to that point. Uh, I believe uh, there was a story we covered a few years back about the Pittsburgh Steelers having a trainer. Uh, who used incorporated CBD uh, into training regimens for athletes uh, who had uh, incurred concussions on the field, and they were reporting that the athletes were uh, returning to the playing field, were being cleared for returning to play uh, a lot faster uh, with fewer uh, negative side effects. And I think that that's an important thing anytime we can help uh, these athletes go out there. And we've talked about the professional football players who got hooked on all the painkillers and all the other drugs that the league put them on so that they would keep being able to perform and go out on the field each week, even if they were in pain and suffering. And of course, their playing career has ended, but not their dependency on those meds. And horrible, terrible stories from Jim McMahon and, and on through all these uh, hockey players and football players and other athletes uh, who just one after another tell the same story about how life on those drugs after sports was crap and they all got fat and they all got lazy and uh, you know, they lost the will to get out of bed in the morning and, and, to, and to move on and to do, you know, whatever they needed to do. And then they switched to marijuana and they found they were still getting more or less the same level of pain relief but without all the crap and all the negativity that comes uh, along with the opioids that they had previously been hooked on and it helped them switch off of the opioids and onto the marijuana, which as we've constantly talked about on this show is incredibly safer than any of those painkillers and any um, alcohol or anything else that somebody might take to help control or manage their pain if they're a professional athlete. But the, the big issue always was that an athlete couldn't smoke because THC stays in your system for 30 days and it's going to turn up. And it was on a, always on everybody's no, no, no list. And now we're seeing a number of really some of the bigger names in sports, the NFL, the NCAA, UFC fighting. Uh, you know, these are not small groups. We've talked about baseball coming out and generally supporting CBD. And that's okay, they don't have to get to marijuana yet, but they will get to marijuana. And the smart move is that such a large number of players, uh, professional athletes do enjoy smoking marijuana or using CBD uh, as a way to help control their pain, to relax their mind after uh, a big game or a stressful game, uh, to help them bounce back from injuries and any one of a number of different things that we, we've all talked about. So, you know, you're really kind of preaching to the choir when you're going back to athletes, both professional and collegiate, and saying, hey, we think it would be a good idea for you to smoke some marijuana, or that it wouldn't be, a, at least it's not a bad idea for you to smoke marijuana. And then we don't have to worry about whether, you know, swimmer Michael Phelps does or does not get caught during one of his off periods in between swimming competitions when he's back at the University of Michigan doing a bong hit in a uh, uh, fraternity house. And all of a sudden, that's the biggest news in the world. And the poor guy is getting lambasted by everybody and has to apologize. And then all he did was go out and win another 10 or 15 gold medals. So screw everybody 
we won't just let the guy have a good time and feels, you know, the need to do that, but uh, maybe we don't always. So at any rate, um, this is good news. People are moving in the right direction. We like to see that. It's the way it should be. Um, and let's get back to our show really quickly here. Uh, we now find ourselves deep into the second set, and Jerry's getting ready to do his thing. And uh, on this next track, uh, one of his beautiful ballads, again, pay close attention to Jerry's voice, as well as his strong guitar playing. And uh, we'll see, uh, we'll talk about it on the back end. So here we go, Dan. Dust off the strings just one more time. Going to make them shine. And um, what I love about this is uh, right. Um, I've stayed in every blue light cheap hotel, and certainly as the years went on, it got harder and harder for Jerry to really hit those notes. But here, you know, like we say in the, in the still in the comeback period after his diabetic coma, he's just he's flowing, man. He hit those notes. His singing. Again, was perfect, was spot on, uh, strong, and and you know, uh, very tuneful. And uh, his playing afterwards with those those sweet chords that he lays down, uh, Stella Blues, just a, a great song, uh, wonderful to hear. Uh, we love it. Jerry loved it. He played it over 328 times with the Grateful Dead. First time on June 17th, 1972, at the Hollywood Bowl in Los Angeles, and the final time. Uh, was on July 6, 1995 at the Riverport Amphitheater in Maryland Heights, Missouri, just outside of St. Louis. So um, we're getting to the end of our show today. Uh, time always seems to fly by. Um, but we got to read some, uh, catch up on some good news about uh, what's going on in the marijuana world. Uh, some good news on groups that are going to be out there touring, uh, who we're going to have a chance to see, Phil Lesh. Um, uh, and of course, Bob Dylan, uh, who's always just incredibly fun to see. Uh, and, you know, it's nice that they're still out there and they're still doing their thing. And yeah, you know, maybe it's uh, time to pack it up. But if they're still having a good time, why bother? And then, of course, Live Dead and the Brothers doing their thing. And hopefully they're going to become a big name that people will be talking about. And like I say, I'm going to see him with good buddy Mark in a couple of months, and I will give you my review of uh, my thoughts on the band after that goes down. Um, in the meantime, uh, please be sure to tune in again next week for another fun-filled, exciting, and uh, grateful deadish episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. Thanks to Dan for all his help with the engineering work. Um, everybody have a great week. Be safe. Enjoy your cannabis responsibly and enjoy this final show song from the show that uh, we have been featuring today from the San Francisco Civic Center on January 29th, 1987. Thanks, everyone.
Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey everyone, it's Ryan from the Cannabis Connoisseur Podcast. If you're looking for ways to utilize cannabis to keep you healthy, strong, and sharp, come join us every Wednesday where we dive into the best ways to use cannabis to optimize your life. Topics include cannabis and athletics, cannabis for productivity, cannabis for anxiety, cannabis for a healthy immune system, and so much more. If you're a curious connoisseur, this show is for you. So please head over to our page and we're looking forward to seeing you this week. Bye.